You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello, and welcome to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. I'm your host, Breach Burke. And today we finally, we've had spent a whole year on Hindu goddesses and learning about the, the Mahavidyas, about the Matrikas. There's actually more Hindu goddesses that we could discuss. But now that we're reaching um, Halloween time, I figured it would be a good time to take a break and do a few different things. In fact, uh, next year I'm probably, if I decide to do more of the Hindu goddesses, I think I'm going to wait uh, until a little later in the year. Um, and probably start the year with the African goddesses, um, you know, both Caribbean and, and Native African uh, dark mothers. But by request, I'm doing another podcast on the Morrigan. Now, last year at this time, we did a podcast where I discussed the Morrigan with April Shaley, who is, um, you know, like me, she's a, she's a Morrigan devotee, and she, um, and, and she and I had a conversation about the Morrigan and the essence of the Morrigan which I thought was, uh, it was an excellent conversation. I, unfortunately, I was plagued by a lot of technical difficulties with that one, partially because April was recording in a place that, you know, she wasn't, she didn't have her usual equipment with her. She didn't have a microphone. She didn't have other things. So she's trying to use the computer mic. And we, you know, <laughs> those of us who have Windows machines all know how the microphones work on those. Um, so it was just one of those things. And then for whatever reason, the video did not want to track correctly. So I could never produce a video. So all I could do was produce an apology video on, on my YouTube channel and just say to people, um, you know, sorry, you'll have to go and listen to the audio version because I can't. And even the audio version, I needed a lot of help, um, cleaning that up. Uh, I still, I still feel like I owe a tremendous amount to Jesse Pollock of the podcast 1289 and the true crime podcast, um, and the author of the acid King and, um, uh, death and the devil's teeth. Uh, I, I feel like I owe a lot to him because he, he, he actually took that file and did a lot to try to clean it up for me, you know, cause my, my audio tools were just useless. Uh, so I don't know, um, that, that could well be, I know I had had a discussion about it with a friend and she says, well, that might be the power of the Morrigan. Maybe she doesn't, you know want some of these things out here in this form. So I, you know, or it was just, you know, just that the energy of it kind of turned it all to chaos. She could be right. I mean, I don't know. Um, it is, you know, Morrigan energy is very, very powerful. And we do talk about her a lot. And she does appear a lot in a lot of places. Um, but like the Matrika energy, her energy is one you have to be somewhat careful with. Um, now, I think the way that I want to do this podcast is like, I want to first talk about the Morrigan as she's presented in the sources that we have. Okay. Um, and these, you know, and I, I will name what these are and what, the, you know, give you the general story behind the myths that are associated with her. Um, and I, I also, I want to talk a little bit about, because, you know, I, I don't always like to do this, but I can't help, but the Morrigan for, for whatever reason has been very much a part of my life. Um, probably from about the time I was mm, 12 or 13 years old. So I, I feel like, um, like, like I've been, like, she's been an inspiration or a muse since that time. And I do have a novel coming out, um, called the Morrigan Diaries, or sorry, I, that was the old name. I've changed it to the Morrigan Timelines because what I was, what I was going to do was I was going to put out three separate books on three separate aspects of the Morrigan, 
But I decided it became too contrived. And I said, no, I, I have to do it the way it was presented to me. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about that because there's a lot of weirdness about the way this was presented to me. Morrigan Timelines is not intended to be um, some kind of accurate rendering of the mythology, okay? <clears throat> There's a lot of people who will frequently do that, who will go back and say, oh, well, you said, you know, you, you said this, but, you know, the Morrigan really never did that in, in the stories about her. Yeah, I, I don't care. <laughs> I'm sorry to put it that way. It has nothing to do with the original stories about her. And let's be real. When it comes to Irish mythology, um, there's, there's probably, there's a lot there that has to be taken with a grain of salt because Irish mythology was written down by Christian monks. And, you know, so they're not going to, they don't always write things in a, in a popular light or they kind of reinterpret it in the light of, um, of the Christian religion. And this, this can be problematic because you, you really don't know, you, you really lose the original sense. And one of the things that I've noticed about the Morrigan is that she's kind of, you know, maybe I shouldn't use the phrase kind of, right? Uh, she's, she's portrayed as either being very... What's the word I'm looking for? You know, there's there's like an exaggerated form of her where she's either, um, you know, she she's she's portrayed as kind of this devious snake like, you know, even though she's associated with the crow, she's she's very like a very devious figure and and really kind of a wicked or a monstrous figure, and which again which is not surprising, um, given the way in which Christianity has interpreted divine femininity. And certainly at a time when they wanted to move people to a new religion, they wanted to try, you know, you kind of want to distance yourself from that. Um, but what I found very, found incredible is that um, I, I had been writing a story about the Morrigan for about, hmm, it's really been like more than 30 years that I've been working on different versions. And I found older versions of things as I've been going through notes and, and so forth. Um, but, um, but it was only, it was in... 2000 and was it 2018 I want to say it was 2018 that I went to Ireland um, I was inspired I, I it was like that May I had a whole new inspiration for this and all of a sudden stuff just started like coming through it was almost like it was being channeled which doesn't exactly make sense because we don't really think of channeling as quite working that way but anybody who's a writer knows that feeling when all of a sudden it's like a story is just in front of your face and it's like, write it down. So the first part of Morrigan Timelines has actually become that. And what's incredible to me is that in the process of writing this, um, I was just writing things that came into my mind. I was picking out names that came into my mind. And now that I'm going back and really researching a lot of the, you know, the stories surrounding the Morrigan, and some of them I'm not familiar with or not familiar with in certain versions, you know, or, I, or you know, you, you read kind of a, a, a simple version somewhere or somewhere else. And I was really kind of like, I, I was almost stunned by how many names and how many places I'd actually gotten right. Like, you know, or, or writing about ceremonies or about certain things. And it's like, yeah, that's actually how they did it. And I wouldn't, I, I don't have any knowledge of that. So I don't know what to make of that. You can make of that what you will. I'm not putting forth any kind of natural or supernatural explanation for that. But it was just, it's just very, very strange. And it's kind of a testament, I guess, to the nature of the way of, of inspiration. You know, where, where does it come from? Um, you know, as a young, you know, the Jungian view might be, yes, that's, that's the images of the collective unconscious about that particular 
you know, set of tales and, and, you know, maybe I'm drawing on that or it could literally, I, I tend to see it as a literal inspiration from the Morrigan, uh, herself, but, you know, trying to bring her into a, a 21st century context that we need and trying to, and, and it, and it kind of goes along with my need to have people kind of understand what paganism is about, what the ancient gods are about. We, we have a tendency to view modern religion as a progression, like, um, you know, we're all, like, th this is the modern, you know, religion as it is, is is the evolution from that, those, those primitives who didn't know anything, and, you know, now, of course, we have divine revelation, and we know about our Savior, and this and that, you, you know, having grown up Catholic, I've seen a lot of this, and it, it's, it's garbage, it's bollocks, I mean, it's not, um, you know, the, the older traditions, you know, there, there's certain things that are probably, there's a lot to be said for ethical religion, and there's a lot not to be said for it. And I think I've demonstrated that throughout the different podcasts. The way that we can allow ethical religion to split us apart and put us into certain judgments that we really have no business making. Especially when it comes to the divine. Because the divine is something that is really beyond us, that we don't really understand, and that is unpredictable. We may come into a relationship with it in different forms. And if you believe... Um, you know, uh, you know, more, more Orphic ways of thinking it's, it's part of us. And I, you know, I, I don't really have any reason to doubt that, but it, it, there's, there's different ways of uh, looking. Well, not just Orphic, actually, it's the, that's the whole Hindu way of thinking as well. Um, that, you know, d you know, the divine permeates everything in the West. We don't think the divine permeates everything. We think the divine is, um, you know, something reserved for, um, you know, some kind of heavenly court that's far away from us. So, you know, it's not, um, or at least that's the, that's the standard Western um, monotheistic uh, motif. So, anyway, sorry for the long preface. Let's just get right into the Morrigan and who she is. Okay, now first off, the, Ir the, the Morrigan is the Irish goddess of war. She is considered to be a triple goddess. Um, generally, and, and <clears throat> the names sometimes vary. There's Maka, there's Bav, which is spelled B-A-D-B. Those of you who have seen my book, Maeve, will recognize this Irish spelling. And uh, Namain, or Anand, uh, sometimes instead of Namain. And these three goddesses, the names I've seen variously translated. Sometimes I see them translated as Venomous, Furious, um, and then um, Namain has to do more with keening or mourning. Uh, that's at least one set of interpretations, but there, there are others too. Um, Bav has a more literal meaning. I can't remember what it is right now. Um, I'm sure somebody who, who knows, um, the Irish language will tell me what it is, or maybe I'll even find it in my notes, but, um, they are, they're considered to be sisters of the land goddesses, Eru, Banba, and Fodla, which are also other names, uh, for Ireland. You know, like we think of Erin or Eru. I mean, I'm not, you know, and again, I, I know there's going to be somebody who's, I, I'm going to try to stay away from as many Irish words as possible, as, as sacrilegious as that seems to a podcast on the Morrigan, only because Irish is extremely difficult. And it's amazing. Out of all the, I, I don't get a whole lot of criticism on my podcast, but it's amazing the people who want to just come down on you, particularly for Irish pronunciation, which is probably the hardest in the world. Let me tell you, the pronunciations I get, I try to research them. Sometimes, you know, I jump into something and go, oh, crud, I didn't look that word up. And now I've got to try to say it here live without having to start all over again. But, um, 
and and Irish. I, I studied it for two years, and I, I still, I, I struggle with it. Um, so I, I try to do my best to not to not butcher the language, but it's very hard. I'm sorry. And even I've I even talked to people in Ireland, and they're like, yeah, I, I took it for twelve years in school or whatever. I've never quite grasped it. Um, it's just it's very hard because the way that it's spelled doesn't really connect with the way that we pronounce things in English. So. It's like, it's like seems so alien that you have to like, you have to really think about it when you think about the letter combinations and how they, you know, connect up with other letters and particularly the way things like BH and MH connect up with vowels. It, it's just, and then I think, okay, I know what the rule is. And then I say something and it's like, nope, it said the other way. And it, so I don't know. I, I try to pick up the, my pronunciation from actual Irish people. Um, but apparently I don't, oh, you know, Either they're not saying it right, or or as somebody had told me in the um, the Gaeltacht, which is the area of Ireland where they, it, it's all Irish. I mean, you don't really, I mean, it's not that people don't speak English, but you see all the signs are in Irish. And uh, I've, I'll give them a pronunciation that I learned in class with somebody from Ireland, and they're like, oh, uh, yeah, well, they said, well, you know, people down the street, you know, the, the people down the street will pronounce words differently from us. I'm like, well, how the hell does anybody communicate? But anyway, so I'm not promising... Um, magnificent pronunciation but uh so i'm going to try to stick with the english translations as much as possible um <clears throat> okay so we've said we've established that the morrigan is a sister uh the, the morrigan the, the triple morrigan is the are the sisters of the triple land goddesses so we immediately see a connection of morrigan to the land now speaking of mave not not my fictional mave which is completely unrelated but the Maeve of, um, the Queen Maeve of Ireland, whose grave is in, um, on the top of Nocnoria, um, which I almost made it up there, but I have a, a deathly fear of heights. And when I got to the section of the hill where you had to climb these kind of slippery wooden steps and there was nobody else around, and basically there was no railings, it was like you were going to fall into a pit on either side if you slipped, I thought, eh, no, I'm not going to go up there. I'll, I'll, I'll take the other route next time I'm in Ireland. Um, so I came very close to Maeve's uh, grave, but I didn't actually make it up there. Uh, but Maeve, Maeve is also deals with sovereignty. She's also there's a lot, and you'll see there's a lot of overlap between Maeve and the Morrigan. Okay, in terms of their stories and their functions, <clears throat> in my mind, I almost feel like I don't want to say they're interchangeable because that's wrong. Um, but they're they they are different. But there's I see a way in which those stories could be either confused or you know, um, where one becomes a representation of the other. I don't know how else to say it, but I, I kind of feel like there's more than a, a superficial connection between Maeve and the Morrigan, even though they do appear as totally different characters. Um, now, some say the Morrigan is the envious wife of Dagda, who is the head of the um, Tuatha de Danann, and in some versions, and others say that... Um, uh, Bav and Nemain are wives of Neat, the grandfather of Balor. Now, if we remember Balor from our podcasts on, um, you know, the, the I think it was in the Matrika podcast, we were talking about the lightning bolt as a as a weapon. Um, I think Indrani in particular. Uh, Balor is the, basically is a representation of the sun god. And Balor... When he opens his great eye, you know, if an army tries to face him, then he opens his great eye and people burn up. He's actually a representation of the summer sun, you know, when it's at its hottest and when it's no longer providing growth, but maybe bringing drought or, or killing things you know, or burning things up. So, uh, and then he's brought down by Lug, you know, who uses the lightning bolt as the weapon. 
Um, and so, and, and so therefore that represents, you know, because you think about it, when the lightning comes, that's usually when the cooler weather comes in and the rains and it, and it cools the influence of the sun. Um, and that's also associated with the autumn season, which we're in right now. So, um, so that's when we talk about Belor. So this is Belor's grandfather. So we're talking about very, very old, old deities. Uh, now in later folklore, the Morrigan is associated with the Banshee. Okay, we've all probably heard of the Banshee, um, people in Irish families, supposedly, when the Banshee um, comes, you know, it, it, there, there's, the Banshee has this horrible wail, and that is something associated with the Morrigan, is this horrible, horrible scream. Um, I want to say it's in the, the Tenbo Cooley, uh, the cattle raid of Cooley, um, that there is a scene where they refer to the Bav, okay, which is another aspect of the Morrigan, appearing to warriors who are camped overnight, and when she lets out her cry, the the whole camp, um, you know, a third of the warriors just drop dead from fright. And you really have to think about that. You've got these 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 warriors, these um, you know, um, you know, th these guys are, are are tough. I mean, you know, you know, they they kind of you know, I, I almost think of Monty Python's Black Knight, not not in this uh, a serious serious way, but you know, you, you cut his arm off, and he's like, yeah, whatever, I've got another arm. You know, you're talking about really tough guys here. Um, and, you know, you know, hard as nails and the fact that they can hear this sound and it will freeze, the, it will, it will chill them to the point that they will like, just the sound will kill them. That's, that's a pretty potent thing. Um, there's an article I read recently in one of the Irish newspapers on keening, uh, and keening is, is the art of funeral mourning. Now this is not unique to Ireland. Uh, this is something certainly in a, like, I'm just thinking back to ancient Greece, this was a practice that was associated with death. And the idea was that, um, you know, the, the singing, the, the keening, which is that mournful wail, like, like you'll see it. In, there's some groups I've seen that will do that at the casket um, of the dead person while they'll be weeping and wailing. And <clears throat> the, re the reason that they do this is because this is supposed to be, um, well, I don't know if in Irish tradition they believe this, but certainly in Greek tradition, the idea with this was the song of the dead. This is what sang that gave gave the the dead soul its um, its path to you know it, it, it the song sent it on its way to the underworld, okay, where it properly belonged. And of course, she had other rites and so forth. But I remember that um, in the I think it was the reign of I want to say it was the reign of Solon. It was in Athens where there was a decree that was actually put out that that banned keening and these kinds of things because they were. Um, they were chthonic rituals, they were goetic, um, and, you know, by that time, you know, with the rise of, you know, philosophical ways of thinking, and, and um, you know, and, and certainly, if you read my book, Death and the Maiden, I go into it really extensively. Um, another good place to read up on it is uh, Jake Stratton Kent's book, uh, I think it's two volumes, called Gia Sophia. It's, that's, a, that's a difficult work to get through if you're not familiar um, but it's, but it's actually worth the effort if you're interested in this kind of thing. I would definitely recommend that book, but either way, there's that discussion of, um, you know, of, of the Goes or the Goetia, you know, you know, the, um, the, the magicians or necromancers and this, this idea of, um, working with the dead or rights for the dead. And I don't think it's that, you know, leaders in Greece and Rome were opposed to rights for the dead. They wanted to have them, but they tended to want to keep the dead, you know, far, far away, especially the Romans. The dead were a pollution, like stay over there. Um, so this would associate the Morrigan here in this, this context with the dead, that kind of mournful wail. The Banshee, 
supposedly you, the uh, certain Irish families will hear the, the wail of the banshee uh, on a night before, like as a warning that somebody is going to die. So it's considered to be an ill omen. Okay, um, so she is. She has all of these associations, and of course, she's very famously associated with the crow, or really any kind, almost any kind of corvid, with the raven. Um, you know, there are rooks and other things, but particularly the crow and the raven um, are associations of the Morrigan, um, and we'll talk about why that is. Okay, so let's look at the main sources for the Morrigan myth. Uh, one place that it's first mentioned is in a text from the Vulgate of Isaiah from, I think, I want to say about the 8th century. So it was one of those copied by a monk and written down. And it was the very famous Isaiah 34.14, which is about the satyr shall cry to his fellow, and the night hag makes her abode. The night hag is translated in Latin as lamia, and I talk about this also um, in one of my very early podcasts. But... Um, they translate it, they actually make a note on the side, and they say, um, Morgana, you know, or, you know, this, this, this Lamia is the Morgana, okay? So they're, they're equating the night hag of Isaiah, um, which is also equated with Lilith. Um, it's actually, the word I think actually in Hebrew is Lilith, um, it, you know, with this particular monster, okay? So this, this gives you a clear idea of how the uh, Morgana, was viewed by um, by the priesthood. Uh, now we also see stories in the Ulster cycle of myths of Irish myths about um, about the Morrigan, um, um, the cattle raid of Regiment and the cattle raid of Cooley. Um, now I could be saying uh, re- this says th- this translates it as Regiment. Um, <clears throat> I want to say it's Regmana or something like that, but again, I'm not going to try to butcher things. Um, there's also a 12th century, what they call pseudo-historical text, uh, the Book of the Taking of Ireland, and um, the um, the Kath Magatura, which is the Battle of Magatura. Um, that's another work that mentions the Morrigan. And then there's some later, on the, uh, I think particularly Geoffrey Keating's 17th century history of Ireland also mentions the Morrigan. So let's go through each one of these main stories, Okay. All right, so <clears throat> I'm, I'm taking this from sources. I've, I've, I've gone to Wikipedia. I've gone to Irish Bard sites, um, a few different places. So this does come from a number of different um, sources. Um, okay, so let me... Um, oh, this is interesting. I'm just looking at my notes here. Um, they, they were talking about this idea of the translation of uh, Morgana as, um, you know, for Lilith or for Lamia. And a gloss explains this as a monster in female form that is a Morrigan. And Cormac's glossary, also 9th century, and a gloss in the later manuscript, so it's 9th century, not 8th, um, both explain the world, the plural word um, specters. Um, I, think it's, I think you pronounce that Gudaman, but I could be wrong, uh, with the plural form uh, Morgana. Um, and 8th century... Uh, Omokunri's glossary says that Maka is one of three Morgna. Okay, so these are these are the the textual things that we see from um, the, the monks' writings. Okay, so in the Ulster cycle, um, <clears throat> she per, um, appears in the myth of Cucullin. Uh This this is the cattle raid of uh, Regman or Regmana is what it says in in the Irish, um, the Tenbo Regmana, and. Cucullin encounters the Morrigan, but says he does not recognize her as she drives a heifer or cow from his territory. 
In response to the perceived challenge and his ignorance of her role as a sovereignty figure, he insults her. Okay, so now Cucullin, who is, you know, one of the very famous heroes of Ireland, um, he has this, he's shown in these as having this very um, uneasy relationship and, and, you know, with the Morrigan, who definitely represents sovereignty in the same way that Maeve does. And it kind of, it, it shows him, you know, and, and you, it's interesting, we have to think about the symbolism of that. You know, when we think about the, the, the heroics, we think about the heroic mythic cycles, not just in Ireland, but elsewhere. Um, you think about Campbell's monomyth, for example, which, you know, has largely been, I don't know, that, that's been taken apart a lot, his, his interpretations, but still. Um, there are there are certain elements to this hero myth and the fact that he it's like she becomes the monster that he's battling in a way and we can we kind of see a parallel with this with the um with the feminine um you know a dark feminine you know Jonah and the whale I mean you know this idea of um you know you, you know thinking back to Tiamat the, the great monster that fights Marduk um, who is the the mother goddess of the earth um you know the, the way in which this becomes another another Morgan becomes another version of this um but but again not recognizing her sovereignty not understanding the role of the earth here okay before he can attack her she becomes a blackbird on a nearby branch Cucullin now knows who she is and tells her that he had known before then they would not have pardoned enmity she notes that whatever he has done would have brought him whatever he had done would have brought him ill luck to his response that she cannot harm him she delivers a series of warnings foretelling a coming battle in which he will be killed. She tells him, it is at the guarding of thy death that I am and I shall be. So now she's, she's personally overseeing his death. Okay, you don't, you don't insult the Morrigan. But the Morrigan is intimately tied up with death if she's tied up with the earth. Okay, because the, those two things are intimately connected. Um, and yeah, but I like the attitude. You can't hurt me. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't tend to take, I tend to take a dimmer view of the heroes, no matter how great their heroics in some of these, because I'm just, because again, there's that denial of the feminine and of the fact, and there we go again, the feminine power. We talked about a lot about Shakti in the, in the Hindu system and how the Shaktis are the powers of the male deities. Well, here you are, you're a great warrior, you're a great hero, and your power, you know, your power is connected to, um, you know, the Morrigan. I mean, you, you might, fight with her or argue with her but there's a lack of recognition on his part of you know that, that's almost a hubris in, in, in greek terms you know like a like a you know i'm great all by myself you know you're not the one that helps me and and and, and that never warriors who take that attitude it never ends well for them okay so in the cattle raid of cooley tenbo cooley um queen mave of connacht launches an invasion of ulster to steal the bull uh dun cooley which is basically well dun is actually means black usually or dark um but I think the the, um, the bull is actually portrayed as some kind of other color. I don't know, red or gold or something. I don't know. Anyway, the Morrigan, like Electo of the Greek Furies, appears to the bull in the form of a crow and warns him to flee. Cucullin defends Ulster by fighting a series of single combats at fords against Maeve's champions. In between combats, the Morrigan appears to him as a young woman and offers him her love and her aid in battle, but he rejects her offer. Here we go once again. I'm actually reminded of Ajax in the, in the Trojan War. I mean, Athena doesn't offer him love, but she offers him help, and he's just like, no, woman, I don't need you. And then he commits suicide later. <clears throat> in response, she intervenes in his next combat, first in the form of an eel who trips him, then as a wolf who stampedes cattle across the ford, and finally as a white, red-eared heifer leading the stampede, just as she had warned in their previous encounter. However, Cucullin wounds her in each form and defeats his opponent despite her interference. 
because Cucullin has his own semi-divine origins, and this is probably why he can do this. Later, she appears to him as an old woman bearing the same three wounds that her animal forms had sustained, milking a cow. She gives Cucullin three drinks of milk. He blesses her with each drink, and her wounds are healed. He regrets blessing her for three drinks of milk, which is apparent in the exchange between the Morrigan and Cucullin. She gave him milk from the third tea, and her leg was healed. You told me once, she said, that you would never heal me. Had I known it was you, said Cucullin, I never would have. It's amazing how dense this guy is about how, who the Morrigan is, but um, that, that always amazed me. I'm sure other readers of Irish myth will think differently about that, but that's how I've always felt. As the armies gather for final battle, she prophesizes the bloodshed to come. Now, this is another thing about the Morrigan is that she prophesizes, okay? She is a prophet. She knows prophet, you know, the prophecy. Um, now, in, it says, in one version of Cuchulain's death tale, as Cuchulain rides to meet his enemies, he encounters the Morrigan as a hag washing his bloody armor in a ford. Now, there's the washerwoman. That's also connected to the banshee image, an omen of death. Later in the story, mortally wounded, Cuchulain ties himself to a standing stone with his own entrails so he can die upright. And it is only when a crow lands on his shoulders that his enemy believe, enemies believe that he is dead. Okay? So, in other words, she's given the sign that, you know, she's, she's finally won. Okay? Now, in the mythological cycle that was mentioned, uh, she appears um, in the Book of the Taking of Ireland. Um, she is listed among the Tuatha de Danann as one of the daughters of Urnmas, the granddaughter of Nuada. And <clears throat> as I had mentioned, she's connected to the, the synonyms for the name, you know, um, the daughters uh, she, you know, of Urnmas are given as Eru, Banba, and Fodla, which are synonymous with Ireland and their respective husbands. Um, then it says, next come Urnmas's, um, okay, associated with that, they're probably the triple goddess of sovereignty, these, these, these goddesses named for Ireland. Next come Urnmas's other three daughters, Bav, Maka, and the Morrigan. That's interesting how those are represented as almost separate from the Morrigan, but they're actually uh, sort of together. A quatrain describes the three as wealthy springs of craftiness and sources of bitter fighting, okay? So this gives them kind of a tricksterish element. Now, they are shapeshifters, so that is also a tricksterish element if we're talking archetypes here. So the Morrigan is a trickster in a lot of ways. Uh, the Maragu's name is also said to be Anand, and she had three sons, Glongame and Kaskar. According to Geoffrey Keating, okay, there's that, uh, Eru, Banba, and Fodla worshipped Bav, Maka, and the Morrigan, respectively. Now, it's interesting. You have the goddesses of sovereignty worshipping the Morrigan. Now, why would they do that? Because the Morrigan, kind of like the, the, the deities we've just been discussing in Hinduism, are, are in a way is kind of like almost the Shakti of, of the land in some ways. She's the um, she's that primal force that things come from, and um, you know, and the tales about her I think make that sometimes a little bit difficult to understand. But uh, you know, she's usually wronged. She's almost always wronged in some fashion by men who are either very weak or think that they're very strong. So it's that's something to keep in mind. <clears throat> now in the Kath Magaturad. Um, it says that on Samhain, she keeps a tryst, a tryst with the Dagda before entering a battle against the Fomorians. Now, the Fomorians were sort of, um, they're, they're almost sort of like elemental beings <clears throat> that are, that were the, sort of the enemies of the, of the Tuatha de Danann, which, which might be oversimplified. You might think of it as sort of almost sky gods versus earth gods, but that's not really quite right. Um, in any case, they were two um, opposing forces. Um, you know, when the Tuatha, you know, moved into the area that they were 
um, and, and the Fomorians were already there. You know, there's there's this again this battle for sovereignty. Um, now, when she when the Morrigan meets the Dagda, she is what <clears throat> when he meets her, she is washing herself, standing with one foot on either side of the river uh, Unius. In some sources, she is believed to create have created the river because the Morrigan is also can be associated with rivers and lakes. After they have sex, the Morrigan promises to summon the magicians of Ireland to cast spells on behalf of Tuatha Dé and to destroy Indec, the Fomorian king, taking from him the blood of his heart and the kidneys of his valor. Later, we are told she would bring two handfuls of his blood and deposit them in the same river. Okay. Although they also say in the same text that Indec was killed by Ogma. Okay. Um, as the battle is about to be joined, the Tuatha Dé leader, Lug, asks what each what power they bring to the battle. The Morrigan's reply is difficult to interpret, but involves pursuing, destroying, and subduing. When she comes to the battlefield, she chants a poem, and immediately the battle breaks and Fomorians are driven into the sea. After the battle, she chants another poem celebrating the victory and prophesizing the end of the world. Okay, so, um, so we see this power that she has. Um, and, and really it's this subduing. So she has the power to take, uh, the elemental forces of the earth and drive them back into the ground. We know that the sea is connected with the underworld. Um, underworld tends to be in caves, under the water, um, or in Western lands in a lot of, um, mythologies. So this, this sort of fits in with that. Um, now, it gives another story where the Morrigan lures away the bull of a woman named Odras. Odras then follows the Morrigan to the other world via the cave of uh, Kruakan, which is said to be her fit abode. And um, her other fit abode is Owenagat. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, when Odras falls asleep, the Morrigan turns her into a pool of water that feeds into the river Shannon. In this story, the Morrigan is called the Dagda's envious queen, fierce of mood. She's also called the shapeshifter and a cunning raven <clears throat> whose pleasure was in mustard hosts. So she likes, she likes stirring shit up. <laughs> um, okay. So those are the stories. Now, I, there's also one other story um, of her that I know of that is not mentioned, and that is a very famous one. In fact, a lot of the depictions that I see of her are in have to do with that version of the story. Um, and this is her ver as Macha. And... This I got from a Bard website, and there, there, there's an incredible coincidence in this one for me as I was reading it. Um, it mentions that there's, okay, this is, this is, this is Maka and Krunden, and um, so it says, there's a man of Ulster named Krunden. He was a farmer and a good man, but he had a terrible misfortune. His wife had died, leaving him with three young children and no way to take care of them. His house was in disarray. Every day he had to get up and leave his young children to go work in the fields, knowing this was no way for them to be raised, but having no other option. One day when he came home from a long day at work, Krunden opened the door, expecting to see the usual shambles. To his astonishment, the house was as neat as a pin, the children all clean and quiet, and a beautiful woman sat by the fire cooking the dinner. The woman told him her name was Macha, and she had decided to be his wife. Not one to argue with this great fortune, Krunden settled into married life. Macha was a perfect wife to him, keeping the house clean, the children happy, and taking perfect care of Krunden. He knew she was a woman of the other world by the way she moved. She could run swiftly, so swiftly that her feet barely touched the ground, but she never made any fuss over this, only going about her business as a wife and mother. One day the king of Ulster summoned all his people together for a feast to celebrate his, his purchase of a fine new team of chariot horses. Crondon was excited to go, but Maka took him aside and warned him not to speak of her, not to boast about her, or he would bring disaster upon them. Crondon promised he would not, and away to the king's feast he went. 
The new horses were beautiful, gray, and swift, and perfectly matched, and the feast was a great one, showing King Connor's great generosity. Now, this was one of my sudden, um, I don't know, you might want to call it synchronicities with my fiction story, but I'll talk about that later. Um, Corundin ate and drank along with all the other people at the feast, but he remembered Maka's warning, and when the other men began boasting about the beauty of their wives, he kept his mouth shut. When the other men started boasting about the cooking of their wives, Crundon bit his tongue. But when the king boasted that no creature in Ireland was faster than his new horses, he could not keep quiet any longer and bragged aloud that his wife was so swift she would beat the king's horses in a race. Stung by this, the king Connor ordered his men to seize the boastful farmer. He demanded that Crundon send for his wife, and if she did not come to prove the truth of his statement, Crundon would pay for his lie with his life. Men were sent to Crundon's house, but when Maka opened the door, they could see she was heavily pregnant. Nonetheless, they told her what her husband had said. If she did not make good his boast, he would pay for it with his life. Maka agreed to go with them in bad grace. When she came before the king, Maka begged him to consider her condition and postpone the race until after she had given birth and had time to recover. But the king had been brooding on the insult Crundon had given him and refused her plea. Then Maka turned to all the warriors of Ulster, um, the Krorruav, or the Red Branch, assembled there, and asked them to intercede to protect her. She reminded each of them was born of a woman, and it was not right for them to put her in his position. But none of them stepped forward for her, none would plead with the king. They had been drinking at the feast and were eager to see this race, see their king put the boastful farmer in his place. You see, this is not going anywhere good. Um, something about Macha must have given King Connor pause, because before the race he had charioteers stripped back all the decorations on his chariot, all the cushions and cloths that made the ride easier. Uh, till the king's chariot was barely a plank of wood with wheels, as light as it could possibly be. He then stripped off his armor and heavy cloak till he stood in his lightest linen tunic and dismissed his sister Dictra, who was his charioteer, and took the reins of the chariot himself. Maka waited. The race was held on the grass outside the king's fort, where there were no stones or uneven ground to trip the horses or foul the wheels. All the men of Ulster, ga Ulster gathered there to watch as the king and Maka raced. The king raced and mat his matched horses, and they ran as swift as the wind, moving in perfect unison, pulling him so fast that he felt he was flying. But if the king raced as fast as the wind, Maka ran faster. She outpaced the wind itself. Her feet barely seemed to touch the ground, but as she ran, the birth pains came on Maka, and she began to scream. All the people watching felt suddenly this was not the great sport and entertainment they thought it was. Screaming in agony, Maka ran the course and crossed the finish line with her belly protruding in front of the noses of Connor's horses. Then, having won the race, she collapsed on the grass, and in a rush of blood, her twins were born still and dead. She gathered them into her arms and put a curse on all the warriors of Ulster. For failing to use their strength to defend her in time of need, Maka declared their strength would become useless to them. Whenever they needed it most, their strength would desert them, and for nine days and nights they would endure the pains of a woman in childbirth. This curse would last for nine generations. Each fighting man of Ulster, as soon as he was old enough to grow a beard, would come under the curse. With that, Maka gathered her dead twins, leaped over the heads of those watching, and ran off, never to be seen again. And from that day forward, the king of Ulster, the fort of the king of Ulster was known as Emin Maka, or the twins of Maka. Okay? And it's still known as that to this day. Um, now, this is from the Bard website, bardmythologies.com. Uh, and what was interesting to me was the fact that the king's name was Connor, because when I was writing my story last year, um, <clears throat> I have a, a descendant of one of the O'Connors um, who, who is, in, you know, who hasn't, you know, the, the ancestor has insulted the Morrigan. She's placed a curse, very different one in, in my book. Um, but um, but she, she goes after an ancestor of him many generations later. Um, you know, and, and, you know, the book of, obviously the story is all about why that happens, but we will not, um, you know, I'm not going to talk about that. I mean, don't want to give away the story, but, um, 
but I, you know, I, the name Connor or O'Connor just sort of came to me. It wasn't, um, something, I mean, I was actually staying in the town of Tulsk where, uh, the Morrigan's cave is supposed to be known as Owenagat or the cave of the cats. Cause supposedly, um, large, you know, not, not, not little kitty cats, but like big panthers and, and, you know, <laughs> type, uh, type creatures came out supposedly and had it to be hunted down. Um, you know, that that was, uh, her, you know, but that's her abode, and that Samhain, she actually appears from that cave on a three-legged chestnut-colored horse that the, the Morrigan um, rides out of that cave uh, on Samhain, which is, uh, which is what we think of as Halloween. So, uh, so yeah, so there's these, these myths of, um, of the Morrigan uh, connected with that area, and I had gone to stay in that area, and I'd gone to see the cave, too, uh, while I was out there. And there is a... Um, I think there's sort of an O'Connor faction there, but I had actually had the name before that. Um, when I had been in Rothcrohan, which is the, the whole uh, Iron Age area, I had done some, some research there um, on some of the things, and I was amazed because another thing was um, one of the, in, in the book I have, one of the ancestors, um, he's made into a king. And, and the things that I was seeing, the rites that I was seeing in my head, when I actually read about them and learned about them from the um, historians and the archaeologists there, um, it was pretty darn close. Let's put it that way. It was pretty darn close. So I was just like, wow. I like, I, I just, I don't know. I just marvel at those kinds of things because, you know, we, we don't, we don't always know where certain inspirations come from, but I'm kind of like, that's just really weird. Like where, where does that come? I'm always amazed, but I shouldn't be amazed by it, but I am. Okay. So let's talk about, um, the forms and associations of the Morrigan. Um, yeah, she's got this crow form. She's got this washerwoman or banshee form. And, uh, you know, with, with the, the howling and the keening, which we associate with um, the dead and with necromantic rites and, and um, omens of death. Also with prophecy, okay? Uh, she's connected with sovereignty, which connects her to Maeve. Um, and there's supposedly links to Arthurian legend, but these really have not been found to be valid, like not, not linguistically or otherwise. Um, so <clears throat> you'll, you might read somewhere that Morrigan is connected to Morgan Le Fay. Probably not. Um, you know, they're not, they're not necessarily the same. Although, you know, you, you could see why people might think that because Morgan Le Fay is a very similar, as a, as a witch, she's kind of got the same kind of character and some of the similar character and traits to the Morrigan. But they said, you know, etymologically, historically, and so forth, there's not really a connection. So let's see. Um, let's look at her other nature and role here. Uh, now, she's often considered a triple goddess, but this triple nature is ambiguous and inconsistent. Um, and it may appear partially due to the Celtic significance of Therinus. Sometimes she is, appears as one of three sisters. Um, sometimes the trinity consists of, like I said, Bav, Mak, Bav Maka, and Anand, collectively, collectively known as the Morgana. Um, and occasionally Nemain, uh, or another one, Faye, appears in the various combinations. But the Morrigan can also appear alone, and her name is sometimes used interchangeably with Bav and also with Maka. So... Um, yeah, it, it's not really, you can't make, like a lot of these goddesses, you can't necessarily make a clear delineation. In a way, they're all the same goddess. Um, okay, Morrigan is mainly associated with war and fate, and often interpreted as a war goddess. Um, and they, they mentioned this book, W.M. Hennessy's The Ancient Irish Goddess of War, written in 1870, was influential in establishing this interpretation. But as, as, as it implies, the Morrigan is more than a war goddess. Um, her role involves premonitions of a particular warrior's violent death, suggesting a link with the Banshee of later folklore, as we said. Um, 
this connection further noted by Patricia Lysot. In certain areas of Ireland, the supernatural being is, in addition to the name Banshee, also called the Bav. Um, her role was not to be only be a symbol of imminent death, but to influence the outcome of war. Most often she did this by appearing as a crow flying overhead and would either inspire fear and courage in the hearts of warriors. Fear or courage, excuse me. In some cases, she is uh, written to have appeared in visions to those who are destined to die as washing their bloody armor. In this specific role, she's also given the role of foretelling imminent death, with particular emphasis on the individual. Um, there are a few rare accounts where she would join the battle itself as a warrior to show her favoritism in a more direct manner. The, the Morrigan is also associated with the land and animals, particularly livestock. Um, Mary Herbert argues that war per se is not a primary aspect of the role of the goddess. Uh, Herbert suggests her activities have a tutelary character. She oversees the land, its stock, and its society. Her shape-shifting is an expression of her affinity to the whole living universe. Um, and that she's also been noted as a protectress of her people's interests and associates her with both war and fertility. Um, and, you know, the, and they, they, there's another uh, source that mentions the goddess in Ireland is primarily concerned with the prosperity of the land, its fertility, its animal life, and when it's conceived as a political unit, its security against external forces. Um, so therefore, you know, as defending the tribe or, or, or whatever, you know, the Morrigan, you know, definitely, you know, she, she represents that, that protective force. And that, and that makes sense too, because you retain sovereignty by fighting off your enemies. Um, and of course with fertility, you know, this is the way that you expand, uh, the land and the people that you protect. Um, <clears throat> let's see, uh. Then uh, they were saying her worship might have resembled that of Perkta. Remember we talked about Frau uh, Perkta and, and Grilla last year, who are also kind of monstrous women in Germanic areas. So Perkta groups, they said might, her, her worship might have resembled that. I, I don't have any notes on what that is, but that would be interesting to research. Um, and there's a burnt mound in County Tipperary known as, um, <clears throat> I think this is pronounced, uh, Folakna Morgana. Uh, the, or the cooking pit of the Morrigan. Um, these sites are found in wild areas and are usually associated with outsiders, such as the Fianna, as well as the hunting of deer. There may be links with the three mythical hags who cook the meal of dog flesh that brings the hero Cucullin to his doom. Uh, uh, let's see. And then there's the, and again, I think I might I might have my Irish pronunciation wrong here too, but the Dachichna Morgana, the two breasts of the Morrigan, a pair of hills in County Meath, suggests some role as a tutelary goddess comparable to Anu, who has her own hills, also known as the Breasts of Anu, in County Kerry. Um, okay, so, let's see. Okay, so, those are, those are the basic stories. Um, and I have some notes here on Rothkrohin, which I did talk about, um, which has Oenagat, uh, or the Cave of the Cats. Um, I think I have a more complete uh, rendering of that myth. Um, Rathcrow in itself is a complex of archaeological sites near Tulsk in County Roscommon um, and is the, identifies the site of Kruakan, the, the traditional capital of Kanakta, um, Kanakta, the prehistoric and early rulers of the Western Territory. The Rathcrowan complex um, is a unique archaeological landscape with many references found in early Irish medieval manuscripts. And... Um, so the, their monuments are from Neolithic through bronze, which is about 4,000 BC to about 400 um, AD. And it's, it's, it's an interesting place. Um, I, I, I went out and visited it. You can actually get a bus to Tulsk, and I stayed in um, 
It's a wonderful little B&B. Um, and Sheeran's B&B. It's wonderful out there. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's a tiny town. There's not much to it. And you do really need a car to get to Rathcrohan. You can't, um, you know, there, there's a visitor center in Tulsk, but you actually, to get to Rathcrohan, it's about another five kilometers down the road. So it's not, it's not walking distance. Um, and then on the other side of it uh, is Owenagat, this cave, um, which apparently goes very deep. It goes back um, quite a few um, feet it's, it's a, you know, it's, it, you, you could get, you know, I think they said you could get something like 30 people in the cave. Um, but it's, I didn't actually get to go inside the cave, unfortunately, because it was an absolute wet, muddy day. And what they don't tell you is that you really need to bring clothes for wet and muddy. When you're, when you're there traveling and you have limited clothes and stuff like that, you really, and nowhere to wash them, you really can't, um, do, and I didn't want to get into my friend's car and like, you know, mess it up on him. So I was like, uh, you know, he probably didn't want to do the same thing. I think he had a rental. So I was like, yeah, no, we won't do that. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's not, um, so I will have to go back better prepared another time again, but, um, it's, so it was, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, um, but, it, but it's, it's a beautiful site. It's interesting and it's huge. Um, and it says, Rathcrowan is said to provide the entrance to the other world, described medieval period as Ireland's gate to hell, of course, right? Via Owenagat, the cave of the cats. The cave has associations with the pagan festival of Samhain, Halloween, as well as being described as the fit abode of Morrigan. Okay. Um, so let's see. Um, just want to see if I have anything else in here. Um, okay. Uh, Crowan seems to have heavy associations with the Feast of Samhain, and it was during this time the Irish believed that the prehistoric graves from before their time opened and their gods and spirits who dwelt walked the earth, who dwelt inside walked the earth. The emerging of creatures from an Oenagit would be part of this belief. A legend based on this is the adventures of Mira, in which the warrior of the title is challenged to tie a twig around the ankle of a condemned man on Samhain night. After agreeing to get some water for the condemned man, he discovers strange houses... And finally, when he gets him some water at the third house, he returns him to captivity, only to witness Rothcrowan's royal buildings being destroyed by the spirits. He follows the fairy host to the She, where he meets a woman who tells him what he saw was a vision of what will happen a year from now unless his mortal comrades are warned. He leaves the She and informs, um, there's, um, let's see if I'm saying it right, Alil Makmata of his vision, who then has the She destroyed. Um, and then, um, let's see. Now, there's another story connected to Owenagat, and this is the one uh, called um, uh, Brikriu's Feast. Brikriu is a, um, he's a, like a jester or, a, you know, and he's one of those that, you know, because his role is to be, to mock or to make fun, um, he's got to be very careful. But the warriors, they don't want to be um, made fun of by him. So a lot of times, so he's pretty much shunned, but but he ends up having this big feast where he invites the the three warriors and he sort of gets his his revenge on the people who who avoid him and who do, who can't 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 handle you know being made fun of. It's interesting how you look at all these these kings and so forth. Um, they can't handle like anybody saying anything about them that they think is critical. It's like these 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 men who just have no no ability to take criticism. It's kind of funny, and I think there's probably some commentary on that here. Um, so there's a so you know there's this idea that. Um, he, what he does is he puts out the choicest of meat and he says, this is for the greatest of the heroes. And of course, I think Kukulin and, and there's two other ones who are there. Um, I don't have the actual story in front of me here, but um, they, they, they all go to claim it and then they have an argument. So Queen Maeve has to come and, and sort it out. Um, 
but they end up at Owenage and these, these cats, you know, come out of the cave and two of the men run away. And I think it's Kukulin who actually subdues and, and fights them. So then he's considered to be the one um, worthy of this, this choice piece of meat. So, um, so Kukulin, yeah, he tames them. And, uh, you know, and there's a, an um, Om inscription. Um, that's sort of an old system of writing. It consists largely of a lot of um, these kind of slanted lines or lines in groups. Um, I've seen Om inscriptions before, and I actually have seen this one. The full phrasing is unclear, but the words, um, okay, is it Freik? F-R-A-E-C-H, Freik. I don't know if that's pronounced that way or if it's Freich. Um, I'm, again, I, um, and Son of Maeve have been translated. And it's unclear if this is the freight associated with Queen Maeve. So there is there is this inscription um, on the cave, which is interesting. Nobody really knows what it means. Um, and yes, the emerging from the cave on a chariot pulled by one a one-legged chestnut horse. Sorry, I'm, I'm thinking three legs. It's like, nope, it's only got one. She brings a cow guided by a giant with a forked staff to breed with the brown bull. In another story, the Morrigan takes the cows of a woman named Ordras, which we talked about, and then turns her into this river. Now, um, it's interesting. When I was at Owenagat um, with my friend and uh, this other, uh, and the tour guide, we're all, the three of us are standing there, and there are, there are cows. There are tremendous cows, although the, I forget, what was the name of our tour guide? Was it Dan? I think it was Dan. He had said, um, he's like, yeah, he says, uh, those are actually um, European cows. But they were they were they were very curious about us. So they're sitting there chewing their cud and they're watching. And they're tremendous. I mean, they're fucking tremendous. It's like, oh my god, I've seen cows, but I've never. I mean, they were just like um, they were taller than me. That's for sure. They're big. And so we're standing there talking, and all. And as, as I'm talking, I hear the the crunch crunch, you know, of, of sort of the grass. And you look over, and the cows just are kind of gradually coming closer and closer. And all of a sudden, I hear. <laughs> There's like one standing like right by my ear. I was like, whoa, you know, like, you know, um, identifying the meat eaters in the group because I am most definitely a meat eater. Um, so it was, it was just kind of funny to have it standing there like, hi, who are you? It was like, whoa, this is big ass cow. So I don't know. It, it's, um, it's probably totally normal. Um, I mean, I live in a rural area right now, but it's not, you know, I don't have a farm. It's not like I encounter cattle and things. I mean, we have a lot of horses out here and stuff, but, um, you know. People have chickens and things, but I, I, you know, I don't necessarily encounter them on a regular basis. So, so that's the uh, so there's the Rothcroen connection to to the Morrigan. Um, let's see, and I just have some other notes here. Um, and I, I talked. I've already talked a little bit about the connection between Morrigan and Maeve, um, and the overlapping significance of their sites. And, you know, and I wonder, too, if, if Queen Maeve, like, the, I, I think of Queen Maeve as almost maybe the outfacing form of the Morrigan. Like, she's supposed to be, if the Morrigan is the um, otherworldly version, it's like Maeve is almost like her, um, her, her manifestation in, you know, in the outer world of Ireland at that time. So I, I've often wondered about the, the, that particular connection between the two of them. Um, okay, so the crow form of, of the Morrigan. So she's, you know, she's either a crow or some kind of a, a corvid. Um, not a covid, a corvid. Um, either, either a crow or a raven. And, uh, and crows, like I said, are carrion birds. They pick the flesh from dead bodies. That's, that's how they, um, they're, they're like vultures and others and, and that they, they do eat flesh. Um, and there's, there was a, 
an account I read of something called the Masts of Macha, um, which is after a battle was over, um, the, the dead bodies, <clears throat> the heads would be impaled on spikes, like in this like little, it made it like a, uh, almost like a little forest of heads um, for, for, the, uh, for the goddess. And probably very likely, you know, the crows picked at those too, and that was seen as Macha, you know, taking this as kind of a, the bloody offering from the battle. Um, because it was it was assumed that she would be the one who would uh, drive the winner to victory. So the losers, of course, became, you know, something for her to feast on. Um, and then, of course, we had talked about Kukulin and the Morrigan with the crow standing on his dead body to indicate that he's actually dead. So the, the form of the crow is actually, you know, this is, this is one of the most common images associated with her in all kinds of artwork and so forth. As the image of her is interpreted differently. It's very interesting because I read an article once about how people were kind of indignant. Some some um, pagans were indignant at this kind of sexy, you know, version of the Morrigan. But I'm like, yeah, you got to remember, there are stories of her where she appears as a beautiful woman. You don't want to just assume that she's always got this hag form or that this um, this this scary monstrous form. Uh, it's like Lilith and a lot of the others. You know, they they have dual. They have forms that are seductive, but you know, but but that was kind of the the assumption about the dark feminine there is that the, that seductive form is also one that is destructive, okay? And that, 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 that has a very heavily moralized view of sex and sexuality um, attached to it. But it comes to the old connection between life and death, between sex and death. It's, it's not... Um, to, to try to, you know, when, when you see monks writing it and, like, putting a moral layer onto it, it turns it into something that it's not intended to be. She's she's a fertility goddess, which means she's associated with sex, and she's associated with death. It's not that she's, um, you know, uh, you know, one's right and one's wrong, or you know, you know, or one's evil and one's good. Um, now, the banshee or washerwoman, um, prophetic of death. Bob is sometimes seen as a washerwoman um, washing the bloody clothes of warriors, and that's considered to be an omen of death. The banshee is sometimes represented that way as well. And I mentioned the fierce shriek of the Morrigan in, uh, in the cattle raid of Cooley. Um, and, and the fact that her cry is enough. It, it's also assumed that her cry is also what can stoke people to war. Probably associated with the, the cawing of a crow. But this has got to be something far more numinous. I mean, I, I hear crows out my window every single morning. I mean, it's not, you know, I mean, they're, they're loud. And if I'm trying to do something that I'm concentrating, I'm like, you know, guys, can you? quiet down a little bit but so they're loud but they're not scary necessarily um so i don't know in any case um that's that that there may be the connection there between the crow the cry of the crow um but also the idea of of, of keening and death you have all these death symbols kind of put together um and yeah the other thing i have noted is the, the possible relationship between the morrigan and the morai or the fates because the morrigan does seem to um have you know talk about the uh the fates okay <clears throat> um here's an article here by michaela beckett that i had picked up uh how banshees relate to triple goddesses and she says the banshee is probably the most well-known i'm irish mythological figure in america the image of a ghostly woman wailing in the night to warn of a death is not dissimilar to the female fates cutting the strings of an individual's life or la Llorona carrying away children to the netherworld the fact that women's are the ones warning of the death may seem at odds with popular culture's inclination to cast death as a foreboding male figure with a black robe and a scythe, but the Banshee's history isn't unique. 
For starters, the banshee typically has three possible forms, a young woman, a matron, or an old hag. These three forms are the three forms of the Celtic triple goddess of war, fate, and death, the Morrigan. Morrigan was made of the goddesses Morgu, Bav, and Nemain. Now, that's her, her version of it. It's also Macha, Bav, and Nemain. Triple goddess came in various forms, including the three stages of womanhood listed above, the raven, the crow, the wolf, and the horse. As the crow, the Morrigan will be depicted as shrieking above the fields. Okay, so we, these are all things we've already discussed. Um, so she talks about the, the, matern, the, the, the matres, uh, or the mother depictors, uh, um, depicted in sets of three throughout Northern Europe. You can also think of the Norns, um, in, uh, Scandinavian mythology. Um, the, the, these, these kind of triple figures, Hecate actually is another one. Um, they, they have to do with, um, fertility, you know, they were associated with life and fertility as rather death rather than warfare, fate, and death. At least the matres were that way. But again, as we've said, there's, there's, there's not necessarily such a thick line between these things. Um, <clears throat> so they talk about the, the Rome, he talks about the Roman fates as well. And, um, you know, there's, you know, she's been talking about a lot of other cultures that also have these kinds of um, triple goddesses. But... <clears throat> But the banshee, as this this um, this this prophet of death, um, is you know it, it's not again it's not a unique idea. We've talked about um, and and again I don't want to be repetitive. I've talked a lot about this early on. I'm just as I go through my notes, I, start, I find myself repeating stuff, and, and I don't need to really do that. But uh, but we definitely have we definitely see all of the lines connected here, and and the dark feminine is very much associated with death. That doesn't make it. As we've said, that doesn't make it evil because there is such a fine line between life and death, you know, sex, fertility, and death. This is not just about, um, you know, uh, we, we tend to view death very negatively in this culture, as I've, you know, as I've said before. And there's, there's not a reason to do that. It's part of life. I mean, yes, we, we don't like to deal with the loss and the pain and the grief of what we've lost. Uh, that, that is very much understood. But that doesn't make it evil, Okay. And the Morrigan, well, she has a very, it's hard to describe. Like, like again, like a lot of these goddesses, they're very, very complicated. And they're only complicated because we have this habit of separating out those characteristics. Like, you know, like the divine can't have both of those characteristics. Um, it, it either has to be on one side or the other. It has to be celestial or it has to be demonic. And, it, it, and that's, that, that's a problem. You know, that's why these things appear as contradictions. And really the bottom line is they're not contradictions at all. This is just how, this is how it is. This is the nature of these deities. These deities are extremely powerful and that power can, can be used to bless people and bring them wonderful things. And it can be used to curse them and destroy them. So, you know, um, and certain deities may be more closely associated with, you know, one or the other on that kind of spectrum. But strictly speaking, they're not just, um, you know, monolithic in, in their character. So, um, okay. So we've talked about that. Um, okay, so the last thing I want to talk about with regard to the Morrigan is her, uh, is her prophecies. And so I'm going to read to you a translation um, of the prophecy of the Morrigan, and this this tra this translation is copyright 2014 by Morgan uh, Demler. I, I make no claim to this, um, but this is the this is the version that um, I was able to find. And so this was the Morrigan's second prof uh, prophecy, and what she says here. And I'm not not reading the original Irish. I'm reading the uh, the translation. 
The prophecy was, sky to earth, earth below sky, strengthen each one, a cup over full, filled with honey, sufficiency of renown, summer and winter, spears supported by warriors, warriors supported by forts, forts, forts fiercely strong, banished are sad outcries, land of sheep, healthy under antler points, destructive battle cries held back, crops, uh, masts on trees, a branch resting, resting with produce, Sufficiency of sons, a son under patronage. On the neck of a bull, a bull of magic poetry. Knots in trees, trees for fire. Fire when wished for, wished for earth. Getting a boast, proclaiming of borders. Borders declaring prosperity, green growth after spring. Autumn increase of horses. A troop for the land. Land that goes in strength and abundance. Be it a strong, beautiful wood, long-lasting a great boundary. Have you a story? Peace to sky so be it lasting to the ninth generation. Okay, so this is her, this is interesting, this is her prophecy, and you see that it's, it's stated in the way of a prophecy. Prophecies are not straightforward, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to, it's more, she's giving a set of images, and saying this is her image of, or her vision of the future, okay? And kind of like reading Nostradamus or any of the others, there's some, um, things that might need to be worked out there. But there's a tremendous amount here about boundaries and about about sovereignty. And, uh, you know, but it, but it is actually it's kind of a peaceful prophecy. But there there's an association there, too, with the, uh, with the end of the world or how the world's going to end. So, you know, you can think about that, you know, in any way that you want. I can try to post a link to this from the original source. Um, i got to remember to do that. I, sometimes I say that. I say, I'm going to post something, and then when I actually go to put the, the piece up, I've forgotten that I said I was going to do that, and then I don't. So I, I don't mind being reminded either, by the way, because I, I, will, I will go back and, and edit and put it in. But um, so we have this, so we have this, this prophecy of the Morrigan, and um, I just, I, I feel like, for me, She's, I, I feel like her role now, uh, part of the reason the Morrigan timelines came up for me, I think, and the reason that, because I'm feeling now like I have to finish it and it has to be out. Um, as, of, as of this podcast, it could be out already. Um, I'm, I'm finishing the final edits as I'm recording this in September. Um, but it's also going to depend on my distributor and whether or not they're going to get it out you know, in a timely fashion. They tend to be, you know, because of, of uh, the, the pandemic and so forth, they're still, they tend to be behind. Uh, so I'm finding that they're two weeks to a month behind in publication. So I'm hoping to have this out certainly before the end of the year. But it, it was just incredible to me because, like I said, the, um, you know, the connection between the O'Connors and the Morrigan, which I didn't know, um, the, you know, that it just sort of came to me that way. And some of the stories were kind of known to me, and, and these are sort of variations on them that I have in my own story. But I don't know. There's just a tremendous amount about the backstory there that, you know, as I, as I you know, look at names I've picked or situations that I've written about, I come to find that I'm actually not far off from something, something very related. So uh, it, it, it's, it's just interesting. Um, and so to me, I feel like if the Morrigan has a message, you know, my, my story notwithstanding, although my story does address this, I feel like she's, you know, as, as we need to shift mythologies and as we need to change in a world where, theoretically, we have no horizons, we have no boundaries, no ex explorations, I mean, um, you know, other than space, okay? But we, 
<clears throat> but we still function as, you know, we, we don't have I mean, internet technology. We don't have boundaries. Okay. We, you know, I, I can talk to somebody in India, you know, I don't have to fly there or take a boat, you know, it, it's just, you can, you, you know, the, the boundaries have large, largely been erased, but it's interesting how we live in a world where now we are so fiercely defending our boundaries because we're scared of a boundaryless world. And I feel like the message of the Morrigan is, you know, you you need to you'd better get your shit together and you'd better um you know come to accept the world as it is and she also but but the message i also sort of got from her was you know not sort of the message i got from her was that the the world as it is i mean it goes back to what i've said about shakti you have to recognize where the power of everything comes from you have to recognize the importance of the earth you have to stop making all of that like secondary dismissed and unimportant because us wonderful rational humans are, are so much better than it you know you have to because we'll we'll destroy the world that we live in um we'll make it uninhabitable at least you know i don't i don't know that we'll really destroy it we'll destroy ourselves first but if we want to survive and in, in the story i have you know the Morrigan has said, you know, that the other world's survival is contingent upon this world's survival, which is why she gets herself involved in the world's survival. So it's, you know, there's this, this idea that, you know, you, you need, um, you need the dark, you know, you need this dark force, you need this, this powerful force to kind of rise up and, you know, and, you know, push through that fear and push through that change. You know, you need to, you know, con confront that, you know, being in the belly of the whale, confront that, come out on the other side. And, um, you know, but I think it's less though about slaying the monster and more about, um, finding, you know, figuring out, you know, what, what is the value of the monster? The monster is not, um, you know, I, I remember reading a piece on medieval dragons and, and the, or the difference between dragons, say in East and West, where in the East where they're considered very lucky in the West, you know, we associate them with greed and, and manipulation and things like that. And it's like that, that dragon is, you know, you, you need to, you need to appreciate the earth for what it is. You need to appreciate the gifts. You need to stop, um, you know, you need to stop fighting with everything and you, you need to, you need to learn to live more in harmony and less in, um, in contention. Um, but that said, uh, you know, we're, we have set up a situation where there definitely, um, is going to be battles and, and battles do come up and, and there is, there are, there's warfare that does come up just because of the nature of humans. Uh, but we need to figure out, you know, where, where to place all of this stuff, um, and not, and not in this kind of real dichotomized, uh, overly moral, overly ethics, ethical splits that we have. And I think that's all I want to say right now, because I have a feeling this podcast has gone on very, very long, longer than usual. So let me just stop there. Um, I certainly welcome any comments uh, from people, uh, any questions. Uh, I'm, on, uh, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, and I'm on Twitter um, as Cthonia Podcast. Uh, one word on uh, Instagram and on Twitter, and two words on Facebook. And just Cthonia, obviously, if on YouTube, if you are watching this on YouTube. Uh, anytime you want to, you know, shoot me a question or a comment about it, um, I'm happy to, to try to go more. Because I feel like I could go on. There's a lot more that I could say here, but I, I just need to need to cut it at some point. And, you know, visit Cthonia.net where I have updates. Um, 
I'll have when the Morgan timelines becomes available. If that, if you're interested in reading that work, um, you know, publication dates and availability will be posted there. Um, so, you know, keep an eye out for it. I'm not promising that it's absolutely going to be out by the time this podcast is out, but it may be. And, um, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I appreciate every person who listens, you know, I, and I appreciate my patrons on Patreon. I have some new patrons. Thank you very much. Um, and I'm going to be having some, you know, great extra episodes and things for patrons. So, you know, p- please join Patreon. You know, there, there are some different perks and benefits uh, that, that you will get by being a patron. Um, you know, the, the least of those being early access. Um, usually the day before I, you know, patrons get access to the link before other people do. Um, but beyond that, I mean, I'm also, I'm offering, going to be offering classes and things. There'll be discounts on classes, um, sometimes giveaways of things, uh, and, and extra podcast episodes that I'm, you know, I've been recording several of them to have just for, just for patrons, usually in a YouTube format, but, um, you know, I post them to, you know, but they're, but they're private. They're only to, they're only for patrons. So, you know, so, you know, so definitely check it out if you're, if you're interested in, in supporting this and supporting the work that I do. And again, Cthonia.net lists all that I do. Um, I do do related services for people who are specifically dealing with issues, um, and are looking for some sort of, I mean, guidance, rebalancing, um, you know, help going through transition. And that's at my website, uh, liminalreiki.com, which I think I've also mentioned on the YouTube slide. Um, and I also, I, I mention it almost every day on Instagram where I do a daily tarot reading because I do tarot for people. I do different oracles. Uh, I can do some level of astrology and also, uh, Reiki practice to, um, you know, and I try to, and I have systems that incorporate all of that, but it's not, it's not, it's not a, a, a one size fits all thing. A lot of it depends on what the needs are of the individual. So that's why that, and that, and those tend to be more expensive and that's why, because it's, it's individually tailored to the person. Um, okay. So with that, that's it for now. Um, I wish you all a very uh, happy Samhain and I will see you in the next episode. 